We turn to the text, Genesis chapter 21. We're going to read verses 8 through to 34. Genesis 21, verses 8 through to 34. This is the word of God. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. And he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with a bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So far, the reading of the text. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the church inclusive or exclusive? Now, what does it mean to be inclusive? To be inclusive means that everyone is welcomed, and we don't discriminate based on 
certain physical or other characteristics. If you have an inclusive kindergarten class, then you try to integrate people from different ethnicities and people with different abilities and disabilities, and everyone is welcome and made to be a part. But inclusivity requires exclusion as well. For instance, that inclusive kindergarten class will draw the line somewhere and will not admit as a student a 50-year-old person. There are lines. And that's the same with the church. We see it in the Old Testament. The church is, is inclusive. There are many different people in that Old Testament church that we have here in chapter 21 of Genesis. We, ca we should not think of Abraham and Sarah and Ishmael and, and Isaac as a little family living in a little apartment or a little tent camping. Abraham is a prince. The, the community over which he governs could number in the thousands at this point. You remember that earlier in Genesis, he had 318 trained men with which he defeated five kings. So Abraham certainly has a, a big community. And the community of the Old Testament church includes all kinds of people. It includes Hagar the Egyptian and other Egyptians that he got in, in Egypt. It includes Ishmael, of course, her son. It includes Eliezer of Damascus, and that's up in Syria. So there are all kinds of people that were part of the Old Testament community there in Genesis chapter 21. And they all have the covenant sign. All of the men carry the sign of belonging to the church, which at that time was circumcision. And later on, as you go through the Old Testament, Rahab and Ruth and other people are brought in and welcomed into the covenant people of God. So the covenant people of God in the Old Testament are very inclusive and welcoming. Think of Psalm 87, which celebrates that and worships God and says, this one and that one were born in Jerusalem, and lists all different kinds of nations that were welcomed into communion with God and with the Old Testament church. And so the Old Testament church was very inclusive, and that, of course, was looking forward to the, the massive opening up of the covenant to people from all nations at Pentecost. But it was, there was, a, there was a, a limit, there was a line to be drawn. The Old Testament church, like the New Testament, was a community of faith. It was the visible church. And God shows, also here in our text, and throughout the Old Testament, that the unbelieving and ungodly cannot be included in the community of faith. And so, we have good news in this text before us this morning, a text that speaks of exclusion and excommunication. We have good news because we are reminded that God gathers, defends, preserves a church chosen to everlasting life, and part of that church-gathering work is to take out of the church foreign bodies, things, people, ideas, sins that do not belong. And so when God does his church-gathering work, he does it by calling the elect out of the world, out of the darkness, into the church, but also by removing from the church those who are reprobate, those who hate God and who love sin, and those two things need to happen. 
And so we come to our text, and we're, we're going to be working through it pretty closely with the, the Bible. So if you have your Bible handy, it will help you to see where we're going. So we're at verse 8 here. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, why would he do that? I doubt anyone, many of us, perhaps some of us, if there are any Brazilians here, might have had a special celebration at the first birthday or so of their child, but it's not a common practice for us here in North America. Why would he do that? Well, I remember many years ago I was in Brazil. I was invited with my wife to a first birthday party of a child, and we were given the address. These were people who were not so well off. They were quite uh, modest in their means. And so we proceeded to that address, and it, was a, it looked like a, a wedding was taking place, so we thought, well, we got the wrong address. And then we circled the block a few times, and we came back and realized that was the first birthday party, which looked like a wedding. It was all decorated. There were tables. There was a buffet of food. People were dressed up. And we came to understand that in Brazil, they celebrate the first birthday of the child in a, a just a very lavish manner often. And I think perhaps the reason behind that is infant mortality, that parents, when their child was spared in this life until their first birthday, would put on a great celebration because it was not something that could be expected. And so perhaps that's one of the reasons why Abraham throws this big feast when the child was weaned. He's not one year old here in the text. He's probably two or three years old because they would uh, nurse the children, they would breastfeed for longer in this time, in this culture. And so at this feast, verse 9, Sarah sees the son of Hagar the Egyptian. Now notice in this, in this narrative here, in this, his, this history that's recorded here, that Ishmael is not mentioned by name, and that's important. His name means God will hear. But that's not the focus right now, because what's happening here is, is that Ishmael is doing things that, that, are not, that are not connected with God. He is called the son of Hagar the Egyptian, and Egypt in the scriptures, Egypt in the history of God's people is a foreboding word. It is a word which evokes ideas of slavery and of sin, and of oppression, and of being far away from God and the promised land. So that's how the Holy Spirit sets up the situation here. The son of the Egyptian is laughing. Laughing. Look there at the end of verse 9. Now, what's, why should that be a problem? It's a feast. Why can't he be laughing? Why is, it, why is, why is Sarah get all upset about that? The verb laugh, to laugh in Hebrew is Isaac. Isaac's name is, in Hebrew, he will laugh. That's his name. So for the, for the Hebrew speaker, when it says that Ishmael was laughing, the son of the Egyptian was laughing, it would sound like this to them, that he was Isaacing. That's kind of the, that's the there's a connection to the name there. Now, you see all the things that happen because of this laughing, and you wonder, why does Sarah make such a big deal about it? So we need to understand the verb to laugh here. It has several variations in the Hebrew language. It has its ordinary meaning, which is to laugh, but then it has some intensive meanings, 
which can mean uh, other things. And so we're just going to take a little bit of time to explore that. Let's look at the same verb in Genesis 26, verse 8, first of all. And if you have your Bible handy, that will help you to, to see it. Genesis 26, verse 8. So Isaac is with Rebekah in the land of the Philistines. And look at 26, verse 8 of Genesis when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. That's the same verb as we have in our text in Genesis 21. Now, Isaac has said to Abimelech, she's my sister. Abimelech sees him laughing with Rebekah and calls him and says, behold, she is your wife. Now, how does that work? If you laugh with someone, suddenly you're married? Why would Abimelech draw that conclusion? Well... The reason is, is because the verb to laugh in its intensive form, which we have here in our text, can mean even to, to, uh, to, to caress or to sexually play with somebody else. So it can have a very, very strong meaning. And that's the meaning here in Genesis 26. And then go to Genesis 39, 39, 18. And here we have Joseph, and of course, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. And then when uh, he, he refuses, then look at what she says there in verse 17, sorry, of, of chapter 39. That Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. Now, the verb in its intensive form can mean to, to mock or revile in very crude, gross joking. But it could also mean even sexual contact, as we saw with Isaac and Rebekah. And then go to Exodus 32, verse 6. Exodus 32, verse 6, where the people of Israel have built the golden calf, and then Aaron proclaims a feast to Yahweh. And in Exodus 32, verse 6, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that's the same verb as our text. They rose up to, to laugh. It's the intensive form of the verb. It can mean to just tell crude and off-color and gross sexual jokes, to mock, to ridicule, and even to engage in some kind of sexual contact and activity. It's a, it can mean all kinds of things. And we have that in English as well, right? We have the verb to play. Children are playing with each other. That's a very uh, simple use of the verb. But you can also say someone's playing up. And that means something a little stronger. You can also say, hey, are you playing around with me here? You, and that becomes a little more negative. And then, of course, you can say of someone, well, they're playing around with someone else who they're not married to. And that means something totally different. Same verb, but it has all these different meanings and different levels of intensity. So to go back to Genesis 21, what we have here is not just Ishmael being happy with Isaac and saying, this is wonderful, this is your feast. But what we have is an uh, intensive form of the verb to laugh, which can mean to mock, to ridicule, to, to engage in grotesque and crude, uh, gross sexual joking. And even within this meaning of the verb, it's possible that there could even have been some molestation occurring of Isaac. So this is a very wicked thing that's going on here. It's not just joking around. It's a very wicked thing. Now, who is he laughing at? Who is he mocking? Who is he, as the apostle says in Galatians, who is he persecuting and mistreating? Well, he is attacking and, and mocking 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac is not just anyone. Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac is the one who is in the line, starting in Genesis 3.15, the line of the woman, the holy seed from whom the Messiah shall be born. He is one of the fathers of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the chosen one to carry on the line of the promise. And so when Ishmael mocks him, he mocks God. He mocks the Lord Jesus Christ. He mocks the gospel. He mocks the covenant. And for us to have an idea of how horrifying it is what he's doing, we can try to bring it into, into a circumstance that we can imagine today. Imagine we're having the Lord's Supper and we're in the service and we're having the Lord's Supper and somebody stands up and starts making the most crude jokes between quotation marks and mocking and reviling the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ while we're all gathered together to celebrate the supper. That would be simply out of order and we would certainly do everything we could to remove that person from the assembly. That's the kind of dynamic going on here. Ishmael is in the visible church. He carries the mark of the covenant. He is circumcised. By this time, he is probably in his late teens, between 15 to 19 years old. But the way he's acting shows that while externally he is in the church, in his heart, he is far from God. He mocks the holy things of God. And that's why Sarah responds. She says, verse 10, cast out this slave woman with her son. Now, the church is not for perfect people, thankfully, otherwise there would be nobody here, beginning with the man in the pulpit. The church is for sinners, but for certain types of sinners. The church ministers forgiveness to unworthy sinners, but not to sinners who love sin and want to hold on to it. The church is not a community for people who embrace sin and who celebrate sin. And so Sarah says, she, he shall not be the heir. And so we see that even in the Old Testament, just to be physically descended from the covenant was not enough. God wanted more than just physical descent. He wanted his people to be circumcised in their hearts. He was not looking for people that just complied outwardly with the requirements of the covenant. But he wanted their hearts. And so there's no room for a blasphemous mocker in the royal line of the leadership of God's holy Old Testament people. And so Sarah correctly says, this cannot be tolerated. He must be removed from the community. And when she says, cast out the slave woman, that's Basically, what she's saying is divorce Hagar. Send her away, that's a divorce. And then with that, Ishmael will lose the right to the inheritance. Now look at verse 11. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his sons. Very displeasing. Literally, it says this, was, this thing was very evil in his eyes. And the language here is the strongest language that I can find in the Hebrew Old Testament to express displeasure in this way. When David commits adultery and murder, then the scripture records that this was evil 
in the eyes of the Lord. Adultery and murder was evil. It doesn't say very evil, just says evil. And in 1 Samuel chapter 18, Saul was very angry, it says, and the thing was evil in his eyes. Not very evil, but just evil. So for something to be evil in God's eyes or in the eyes of a human being is very, very strong. But here is what I believe is the only time in the Old Testament where it says the thing was very evil. So Abraham has a visceral reaction. He is very, very upset about what's going on on account of his son. He is connected to Ishmael, the son of his old age. He was 86 when Ishmael was born. He has raised Ishmael and trained him to take leadership in the community. Remember, Abraham is a prince. He rules over a community which could number between two to 3,000 at this point, as many as that. And Ishmael, as the son of Abraham, has been prepared to take leadership in the community. And now, all of that work, when his son is almost ready, he's 15 to 19, he's prepared for his role as a royal prince, now Abraham has to, is being called to give up on that. Remember that Ishmael was Abraham and Sarah's project. It was, he's their idea. They were going to help God keep his promises. God said, I'm going to give you a son. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited some more, and God didn't send a son. So then Abraham and Sarah said, well, we're going to help God keep his promises, because obviously God needs the help. And so Ishmael is a human project. Ishmael is a human attempt to make, uh, advance the, the cause of God and the kingdom of God. Ishmael, in a way, is an allegory for works righteousness, our attempts to set things right with our own ideas and our own efforts. And like every human attempt, apart from obedience to God, it falls apart. Our projects and our desires and our plans get in the way of God's plan for our lives. And that counts for us as individuals, as families, and as a community. And the things we plant with the seed of our disobedience and our own works righteousness, they come to development, they come to flower and fruit with bitterness and death. And that's what's happening here. Ishmael must be excluded. There's no other way out. And Abraham has to struggle with the fact that all of his plans and projects for Ishmael have come to nothing. Doesn't God do that so often in our lives? He just puts us up against the wall and he he puts it right in our face and he shows us that all of our attempts to make things right just lead to more problems. And God obliges us to face the fact that we need to give up on our ideas and our plans and we need to submit to his will and his will alone. And so in verse 12, God intervenes and says, literally, let this not be evil in your eyes. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her voice. Well, that's interesting because back in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord tells Adam off. He says, because you listened to the voice of your wife, so cursed is the ground because of you. And you're going to do your work in the sweat of your brow. You're going to toil and have all kinds of problems, thorns and thistles. But here, God is saying, listen to the voice of your wife. Well, what's the difference? The difference is when Eve was talking to Adam, she was saying stuff that wasn't in line with God's will and God's revelation, and he listened anyway. 
But now, Sarah is saying things which are in line with God's will and God's revelation, and so Abraham needs to be listening. And God tells him to do that. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named, says the Lord. And there, we, there again we see that even in the Old Testament, salvation was not automatic by descent, but it was by the sovereign grace of God, by the sovereign electing love of God, it was dependent upon the promise of God embraced in the way of faith. And that still counts for today. It's not just by being born into the church that I have an automatic ticket to heaven, but it is in the way of the promises of God embraced in the way of faith. And so look at verse 14. When God speaks and intervenes, there's a radical change suddenly in Abraham from being very, very, very upset. He becomes very, very, very obedient. He rises early in the morning. He doesn't dilly and delay and dither, but he rises early to listen. Obedience, which is delayed, is not obedience at all. Abraham listens immediately. And he brings and he, and he gives bread and a skin of water to Hagar. Now, it runs out real quick. Why would Abraham do that to the wife he's sending away to his own flesh and blood, his own son? Why would he send him into the wilderness with very little provision? You would expect that because he has all these resources, he would give them some servants to bring them along and set them up in a local, in a nearby town and rent them an apartment or a, or a house or, or buy them a tent or something and bring them a, give them a, a, a mule to carry their provisions. But he gives them the basics and sends them off. We don't know why. Perhaps he expected them to stay close by, that he would send them provisions more often. But anyway, he sends her away. This is a divorce. She's cut off. And together with Ishmael, they are excommunicated from the people of God and from the visible church. Now, in the next two sections of the chapter, verse 15 through to 21 is the one section, then the treaty with Abimelech is the other section, I want to draw your attention to the contrast between those who are cut off from communion with God and his church and those who live in communion. So let's look at the, those who are cut off there in verse 14. First of all, she departed, wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. It's a wilderness. And in the scriptures, a wilderness is a place of demons, a place of evil, a place of death, of unfruitfulness. It's the opposite of being close to God. It's the opposite of being in the promised land flowing with milk and honey. So she's out there in the wilderness, in the world, far from the church in the presence of God, when the water and the skin was gone. So she's in a waterless place. She's in a place where there is thirst and dehydration. And you think of Psalm 84, which we sang. And we sang that, that when God's people, when they walk through the desert, water just starts gushing out of the ground. And wherever they go, there is life and, and water and, and, and fruitfulness. Because God is there, they drink from the rock which follows them, and that rock was Christ, says the apostle, when he talks about the, the pilgrimage through the wilderness. But that isn't Hagar's experience, nor Ishmael's, because they are cut off from the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are cut off from the visible church, they are cut off from the means of grace, and they cannot draw water from the wells of salvation, and so we see them dehydrated and on the point of death in that dusty wilderness, a desolate place. And then compare that 
with those who stay in communion with God and his church. Look at Abraham in the last section of the chapter. What is Abraham doing? Well, he digs a well. He's digging a well. When you dig a well, that's a big project. That's a big investment. It takes a lot of time and resources. That means he's not going to go wandering around. He's, he's putting down some roots for a while. And he does that at Beersheba. The Beersheba can mean well of the oath or well of seven, and there's a bit of a play on words there. But Abraham is, is, is pitching his tent. He's, he's settling down for a while. He's building relationships with people around him. He's making covenants with the local authorities. And look at verse 33. He plants a tamarisk tree. You don't plant a tree. You know, if you go camping in the summer, you spend a couple of nights at a provincial campground. You don't plant a tree because you're going to move on soon. He plants a tree. That means he's planning to stay for a while. The tamarisk tree was a very, very helpful tree in that climate because it kind of acts like an air conditioner. It draws moisture uh, and, 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 and spreads it in a way which refreshes the air around it. And so verse 34, he sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And if you think of the, uh, the um, let me see if I can do this reverse. You think of the, the, the sea here, the Mediterranean, and then, and then the coastline. And then you have the Gaza Strip, which, is where, where the, the, uh, which we still have today, the Gaza Strip, where, the, where historically the Philistines lived. And then just to the east of that, on the southern edge of the Promised Land and to the east of the, where the Philistines were, that's where Beersheba is, that's where Abraham is camped out. On the edge of the Promised Land and on the edge of the land of the Philistines. There he is. And what does he do there? Look at, look at verse 34, look at the end of the chapter or 33, he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So he's settling down, and he's instituting the public worship of God. You see the big difference here between Hagar and Ishmael there in the desert, far away from God, and Abraham with the water and the trees and the, and, and, and the relationships and the worship of God in the covenant community. A massive difference here. He's got water, he's got safety, he's got food, he's got shade, he's got comfort, he's got rest, he's got the animals of the sacrifices, because when you make sacrifices, some of it gets put on the altar, and some of it is eaten by those who bring the sacrifices. So there's a feast with meat. And the world around recognizes the, the blessing of God upon the church. Look at verse 22, Abimelech and Phicol, they say, God is with you in all that you do. That's Abraham, that's the, the church of God under the blessing of God literally drawing water from the wells of salvation, there's Ishmael in the desert wandering around. There's Hagar waiting for her son to die. And so a stark difference between being in communion with God and being excommunicated from his presence. But as we keep reading and looking at this chapter, we see more than that. Because we learn God's mercy and loving kindness. You see, Ishmael may have blasphemed God. He may have mocked the holy things of God. He may have been excluded from the, the, the Old Testament church. But he is circumcised. He carries the mark of the covenant in his body. And so God still honors that. God still pursues him with mercy. God 
heard the voice of the boy. It's repeated twice in the text. Hagar's weeping, crying out, God, here's the voice of Ishmael, because he's the one who is the descendant of Abraham. He's the one who is circumcised, and God hears him. Ishmael, God will hear. God honors his name for Abraham's sake. Now, the apostle says in Romans chapter 9, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That's what's happening here. Isaac is the child of the promise. Ishmael's the son of the flesh. But yet even so, God still hears. And God provides. He opens the eyes of Hagar. He gives that well of water. Look at verse 20. God was with the boy. God was with the boy. Not the way he was with Abraham, not in everything that he did, but God was certainly with him. He honors Abraham by helping Ishmael grow up, become an expert hunter and warrior, and become a great nation with 12 great princes later on. And yet, despite God saving his life and God helping him to grow up and God making him into a great nation, yet, look where he gets his wife from. He gets his wife from Egypt, the place of slavery, the place of oppression, the place of antipathy to God's people. Now look there in verse 13, verse 18. God promises twice, I will make him a great nation. And so God gives Ishmael a lot of material blessings, a lot of blessings in this world, and he will do that. He will do that sometimes for our children who go astray, who turn their backs on God and mock the things of God and trample underfoot the Son of God and blaspheme the blood of the covenant by which they were uh, sanctified. And yet God sometimes still blesses them in so many ways. But what does the Bible say? What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? All these blessings will testify against Ishmael at the great day of judgment. The believer says, and we sang it in Psalm 84, I would rather be a doorkeeper, I'd rather be a servant in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And Ishmael says, no way. I would rather have great success in the tents of wickedness than to be a no one in the house of God. I'm just not interested. Now, Paul refers to this in Galatians 4. We read Galatians 4. The day came when the majority of the Old Testament people of God chose the way of Ishmael. They were enslaved to the Egypt of sin. They went through the outward motions of keeping the law, but their hearts were far from God. They mocked and despised and ridiculed and persecuted the son of the promise, the promised seed, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I've got good news. God cuts off unbelievers and mockers from the church. God cuts off sin worshipers. Now, why is this good news? Well, it's good news because the church is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And if the church tolerates and celebrates and embraces those who love sin and who live in the deathly embrace of sin, if the church is not faithful in that third mark, which is the, the discipline, then the church is saying by its actions, this is what eternity looks like. A new heavens and a new earth in which people can continue to live for themselves, to lie, to cheat, to steal, 
to be unfaithful, to hurt. That's not good news. To live eternally with sin and those who love it is no heaven at all. So excommunication is the preaching of the gospel. Excommunication is declaring that the day is coming when no sin, nor those who love it, will find a place in God's creation anymore. The whole human race will know and love the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They will worship him. They will call on his name, the everlasting God. That's the good news of excommunication. Now, what God did for Abraham, the father of believers, he does for us. We're going to sing Psalm 107 in a minute, and then we're going to sing the last stanzas at the end of the service. And that psalm describes people wandering around in the wilderness. That's what we're doing. We're wandering around the wilderness of sin of this world. He gives us a safe place to dwell. He gives us a place of rest, a place of provision, waters of salvation in the desert of a groaning, sin-corrupted world. And then if you look at stanzas 16 and 17, which we'll sing at the very end of the service, the psalmist celebrates that he pours contempt on those who oppress and persecute the church, both outside and inside. Those who celebrate wickedness and sin, he cuts them off, he drives them into the wilderness, he mocks proud mockers but gives grace to the humble. And so this morning, as we gather and worship before our holy God, the Holy Spirit confronts us. The Holy Spirit confronts our sin. And this morning, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I ask you, are you living in sin? We're all sinning, I know that, but are you living in sin? Is there a sin, public or private, that you're holding on to? It may be known to the church. It may be known only to yourself and to God. But know this. To embrace sin deliberately is blasphemy. It is to mock and to blaspheme the name which you carry on your forehead. It is to trample Jesus under your feet. It is to profane the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified. If you love sin... If you don't want to give your sin up, whatever it is, then you profane the holy things of God. And church discipline, the process of excommunication, is declaring the gospel. There is no life outside of Christ. There is no life in the way of sin. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation when you hear his voice. Today, do not harden your heart. Why will you go on wandering around in the wilderness of sin, living death in a dry and weary place? Why? Brothers and sisters, sin must be cast out from God's presence. Sin will be cast out. And if you're holding on to your sin and you won't let it go, then you will be cast out with your sin. But the gospel says that when we let go of sin in the way of repentance and faith, then there is always a way back. The Father is always there with open arms and the angels in heaven are always ready to drop everything and rejoice over the return of one lost sheep. The other day, I went for a haircut, and the lady cutting my hair was a daughter 
of Ishmael. Not just a daughter of Ishmael, but a sister in Christ. She was a believer. Now, the sons of Ishmael today, we know them as Arabs, and most of them are Muslims. But this daughter of Ishmael was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we look at the work of the Middle East Reform Fellowship, which we pray for and we support, we learn that thousands upon thousands of children of Ishmael are abandoning idolatry and embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. They're coming out of the desert, and they're being received into the communion of believers. They're casting out their unbelief. They're casting their sin upon Jesus. They're embracing God's promises in faith, and they are being received into the communion of the church Catholic. And that's, that's the whole point. Even when we excommunicate, brothers and sisters, what does the apostle say? deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that their soul may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even excommunication seeks restoration and reconciliation. So what about us? What does it mean for us to be in communion with God and His church? Child of God, look at your heart. As we look at our hearts, we notice that we've got some casting out to do. Let's excommunicate our works righteousness, our attempts to get God's promises to pan out. Let's excommunicate our miserable attempts to take control of our own lives. Let's excommunicate our old natures together with our evil passions and desires, our works of the flesh. Cast them out. Have no communion with them. And what about that pet sin, the one that we're so invested in, the one that it will be very evil in our eyes if we are forced to give up that pet sin. Cast it out. Let's excommunicate everything that is slavish, everything that identifies with the land of Egypt and the house of bondage, everything which mocks and reviles the holy things of God. Let there be no place in the church. Let there be no place in my heart and my life and my family for these things because we are children of the promise. We are born according to the Spirit. We are not dead in sin, but we are alive in Christ. And so, away with everything which mocks and despises our Lord. Lord, let us drink deeply from the wells of salvation. Draw many from the desert of this world to be refreshed at the oasis of the church. Let us dwell in the place of rest that you have given us, the Jerusalem that is from above, the church. This is our home. This is our place of refreshment in our pilgrimage. Here we call upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And though the whole world mock us and be against us, here you are with us. And here we dwell in comfort and safety until the day when our faith is made sight. Amen.